Good evening. Uh, my name is Wesley Brown, and I'd like to welcome you all to uh, the New Urban Voices evening. Um, the title of uh, this evening's program is not altogether accurate uh, if in the sense that new urban voices, that if the voices of these poets are new, they are not new in the sense of having just arrived, but in the way they use language to make the world into a place we have not seen in quite this way before. And if their voices can be considered urban, it is because they see cities as Italo Calvino saw them, as dreams made of desires and fears. And even if the thread of their discourse is secret, their rules are absurd, their perspective deceitful, and everything conceals something else. Um, by way of introducing the poets who are gracing the panel this evening, to my immediate left, is Sekou Sunyata, who has a collection of poetry uh, entitled Free, published by Shamal Books, and an album that is uh, entitled R&B. Judy Simmons, who has published two volumes of poetry, Judas Blues and Decent Intentions, uh, published by Oh, Broadside Press and uh, Blind Beggar Press published Decent Intentions, her most recent volume. Charles Lynch, who's, who will moderate the discussion this evening, who is a poet uh, and also a scholar who has done considerable uh, work uh, on the, on the uh, poetry of Gwendolyn Brooks and Robert Hayden. Sandra Maria Esteves, who has, whose work has uh, been anthologized in Woman Rise, Ordinary Women, and New Rain. And Luis Reyes Rivera, who is a publisher uh, of Shamal Books and has edited several anthologies under his own title and uh, had uh, two collections of his own uh, poems published entitled who Pays the Cost, and This One's For You, and has recently edited a book entitled Portraits of the Puerto Rican Experience. Uh, the format for this evening uh, will be that uh, each poet will read one poem to open, and that will be followed by a discussion uh, of their work moderated by Charles Lynch, which will be followed by questions from the audience. And the evening will be concluded by each one of the poets reading a final poem of theirs. So um, we'll begin by hearing a poem uh, by Sekou Sunyata.
this poem is called I Want to Talk About You. And uh, the title is really based on a, a, a tune written by Billy Eckstein of the same name called I Want to Talk About You. And in particular, there's a, a version of that, of that tune uh, played by the John Coltrane Quintet. Um, and there's an extended solo, actually an extended duet between Coltrane on tenor saxophone and Elvin Jones on drums. So that's sort of the um, musical background, anyway, for this poem. And I think it sort of, um, in my mind, sort of sets the tone for what I'm thinking about in terms of uh, the city and the urban experience. It hurts me to my heart to see you like this, underworld and underweight, impossible to be with, impossible to leave. I must approach you the way I approach music sometimes, late at night and by myself, when people who can't understand are long gone, like the famous who want your infamy without your tragedy, like the rich who want your treasure without your pain. And what about the ambitious who are quick to forget that you could care more or less in the blink of an eye and be gone just that quick? Too hard to catch up and too hard to follow. I keep looking for you anyway. Over by the Harlem River Drive where years ago you went underground, leaving two dead policemen in your trail, then backstage at the old Apollo Theater where we used to be waiting, pulling on the stars, begging them to kiss us like they sang. I walk around with this photograph of you at the African American Day Parade, looking like a 33rd degree mason an Eastern star, an old African, a parliament funkadelic, a clandestine and bookmade believer, a brand and flowing feather in a Marcus Garvey hat, but in your ashy sunken face I see a falling of flesh from bone. I see your red eyes, blue hands, protruding ribs, where once I entered and lived. You were my living room, my address, and my home. What remains the same is how little, how much you've changed. You don't belong to Bird or Billy anymore. You don't belong to Malcolm or Langston anymore. No point telling me whether you left them or they left you since the whole thing is out of your hands, since you have no more control over death than you do over life. But you make it shape it every day. Maybe that's why you never sleep. Maybe that's why the songs, the rings around your eyes, are thin lines between love and hate, the definition of a circle, which you can leave and enter at any point. Brings you right back to where Billy sings and Bird plays to Malcolm and Langston's words, the songs, the speeches, the poems, more alive now than them, but you're coming back, you're coming back, is your power and your redemption. Oh, Harlem, oh, Harlem, oh, Harlem, oh, Harlem. I've searched everybody every place, every blood, every rhythm for you. If not your name, then your story. If not your ugliness, then your beauty.
excited me on what to read because there's an energy and a synergy and uh, there's music. And if the urban experience has done anything to me, it has pushed the rhythm, made things come fast, come together, come hard. And so it made me write a poem called Crazy John. Crazy John tap dancing in a wilderness of stone and steel, mumbling about the future. Crazy John wearing ruby dangle earrings, defying categories of sex or sense. Tap dancing by the blue posted street lamp of the MTA. Crazy John clicks silver to the beat of subways. Crazy John sings to the tune of whistles and sighs. Crazy John mad with the brutalness of being. Tap dancing out the rhythms of his heart. Do by the wee, da da wee in the jazz workshop's doorway. Red and yellow light spilling coal train like a healing halo on a worshiping cluster. Crazy John tap dances in his stocking feet on the concrete sand of North Beach, spirit to spirit with the prophet, the master of the golden reed. Crazy John wants a love supreme. Crazy John needs a ballad to comfort him. Crazy John waits for the watchers to shout, Olay, he is human. Oh God, the man is human bound to the tapping of his feet, but free in the melodies of angels, loose in the rhythms of ancestors. Crazy John dances through the changes, stony broke, misunderstood, liver tainted and acclaimed, ripped off and buried, canonized and still tap dancing. Crazy John times out in Jamaica, flying high on a native ganja, on native ganja and a Gemini smuggler's Colombian weed tweaking the untanned breasts of little white girls from Boston, promising them dark-bodied thrills. He lets reggae replace the metronome of his feet pacing existence. <coughs> Crazy John gives way to a future of disco duck hustles, relentless pulses of mania, slide of platformed feet. Robot gazes into the light-flecked womb of a pseudo-universe where different dancers go to be born or die. Crazy John understands. He danced in the dark dive, in the belly of the fish, at the Sermon on the Mount, with a woman in thick nippled and sweet musks from the wanting of a man. Crazy John understands. He knows about hunger in the belly, that is hunger in the soul, about the question of what is the question, about urine in the eyes to bathe out corruption and the heartbreak of psoriasis, Crazy John knows. He dances at the funerals of parents before they die, <clears throat> taps out the rhythm of difference in the gaps of generations, whirls a black army into the vanguard of cultural lag over the circular bridge of death between sets on the stage of consciousness. Crazy John tap dances. By the blue posted street lamp of the MTA in a wilderness of whispers and tears, mumbling prophecies from unborn seers, Crazy John is still tap dancing for John Coltrane.
actually, this poem was inspired by a restaurant in Brooklyn called The Ferry Bank, but I, I don't think the poem has anything to do with the restaurant. It just kind of was born there. And uh, what I do is explore the metaphor of the river in terms of urban struggle for survival from the ferry bank. Who are we this moment? We who focus our nearsighted vision on reflections from a gleaming riverbank, waiting for clear waters to arrive in switching undercurrents. We who balance giant steps on a sinking sanded shore and give grace to our swallowed presence slipping through lucid tides. Who are we on this day crying for rebirth, the reawakened seed born from the holy tree, where one is brother to all brother, sister to all sisters. We who watch the gilded ships float through the mysterious river, offering our simple bowl of rice to all of heaven, singing in between our dreary despair, evolving occult melodies from our work songs, dancing, casting our sights across an ocean of changing horizons, vying for attentions of mighty kings, majestic queens, guided by the shimmering light of a distant, solitary star rising from the tail of darkness. We who come from mountains where trees stretch across an unending sky, where air thins to a burning delicacy served on a spiritual buffet, abundant and fresh, newly formed and moist. Who are we today, now, waiting on shores of fulfillment for a promised cargo carrying varieties of fish chased by eagles gliding on and over an unstable surface? plucking survival and nourishment from a hyalescent sea, hungering after an unspoken peace, starving for the delicious beauty of seasoned dignity, ravenous for love's light in the mirrored sight of a remembrance where an amorphous hurricane plays against a softly swaying samba, following the calculated flow of waves breaking, dissolving into the voluminous ocean spread across the seven seas, discovered and revived anew in the thunderstorm. I care about whichever word is used like grass or turned to twist and make a victim look like killer or heard to sing like daybreak smelling. An octorose of warmth blending into nightshed deep a dance of waves the sun weaves in an intricate of light of gentle ripples warmly dancing, weaving waves of shade-lit haze, like the sea ebbing into shore. 
Even in the repetition, a word means just as much to me as morning's mist to dawn. The ease with which night moves out for daylight rays like the quick shot from a gun or loosely lipping attitude that can just as easily grit or grin or smile right back in hard, soft sounds like a kitten's tender touch, a curious tiny paw wanting but to be believed. I like the word determination. A black child learning how to read the wonder of a family intact a Puerto Rican grasping and digging into our own past, becoming Borinqueño, studying Betances, Belvis, Pachin Marin, listening to Malcolm, hard, intent, and full of care, concern, in a loving nudge of words, penetrating deep inside the heart of thought with, yes, of course, we got no choice, but grow and be and stand up, child. Come and change this world with strength and perseverance. Come and grace this earth with your own sense longing like the octoroes of warmth, unfolding wing-like petals unto dawn to soar, yes, flying. I like to hear Rashida speaks. I like to watch Zizwe's walk, the happenstance of Sekou's song, the lilting lyric in Safiya's sway. And in case you do not know, have never heard or watched them work, Rashida is an Ismaili, a misspelled word from the ink of census takers conquering her land, Zizwe a child returned from whence once stole, in Gafwa now an African at war, Sekou, but a blue lake, reclaiming lineage to Sundiata, undercoat gorilla born, Safia. Black pearl caught in a devil's hand, way back when Henderson's cut loose from prison cells, sailed across Atlantic gates to rate the earth into a world where poets have no chance. Despite it all, they sing and work, they write and read, they care, get drunk, or pray. While few will publish them their due, fewer still will plant their books into your hands, your own calluses of soil digging deep into self, gripping all their pages, holding them as dearly as you would octaroes of warmth. And yes, I like the word of action true. The sound of gunfire busting through the doors that hold back freedom blue. Given how our own young black folk get cornered into hating what to do, like Larry Davis cracking through the wall of crack that would diffuse whatever life a child could cling to, cornered in a vacuum of tenements, jammed in despair, surrounded by a dozen cops, a dozen watchful dogs, hunting those who break the must and misty stink of deprivation, surrounded by a dozen cops, 
alone except for rifle, shotgun, millimeter automatic in his hand, bursting through the door, this five foot four Davis Larry hurls across a rooftop, shooting, wounding, striking out against this hateful passion, cold city bred, escaping into freedom sent, like the octoroes of warmth. Spreading wide its, soar, its soaring wings and soaring high and bleeding from the heart of nothing, wanting something in the any wake of every word, struggling for the worth of hope that comes at dawn. I think the first thing I need is a watch. Does anybody have a watch with a second hand? That's a rare thing these days. <laughs> okay. I'd like to um, say ahead of time to all of you that I know the poets, they're my friends, I know them personally, and I decided in speaking to Wes Brown, who uh, introduced us all, that it may be best to give so, some coherence to the panel by calling each of the poets at home and speaking to them briefly about what some of their concerns are because the title of the evening is fairly broad, New Urban Voices. So most of the questions that you see me read from these cards, the poets helped me generate or certainly they thought of themselves. Um, huh? You rehearsed it. No, no, no. <laughs> It's definitely not rehearsed, but I do think that um, I didn't want to fly blind as, as moderator and waste time with just asking about things I was concerned with. After all, this is their evening. Plus, he's scared that we'll all talk to <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I fess to that. <laughs> um, Wes and I talk, and we think that if people can try to limit their comments to three minutes or less, things will go fairly smoothly. Is that agreeable? If, if Lewis could, if you hear that, Lewis? <laughs> 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 oh, well, I, I, I do like what some people been doing on those debates, right? I'm going to eat Philip up every Oscar. second of those, uh, those three minutes I'm permitted. Okay, <laughs> fine. All right, I think this will be very enjoyable if people respect one another and stop beating up on one another sacred. I think um, in speaking to everyone, everyone admitted they had some questions about the title New Urban Voices. And it may be best to start by just addressing what some of the attitudes and concerns were about, in a sense, being publicized and advertised in that way. Who'd like to speak to that? Yeah, I, my, the first thing that came to mind when, when I saw New Urban Voices was I had to say, well, new to who? And that's something that we, we have to look at and, and, and certainly consider because, you know, our, we have a, liter a literary tradition that goes back a few hundred years, although for the most part it's, it's been a well-kept secret so that, you know, when we look at the mainstream, um, and this has been changing in recent years, but certainly when I was growing up, there, there, our voices were absent. 
so that that's a primary concern now for all of us is, is that our voices not be absent, but that, be, that what we say, think, and feel, and how we feel, and, and how we look at ourselves is very much um, a priority for today. So, so new urban voices, I mean, it's new to who? Because we've been around a long time. And that, that was just my initial response. I'm not sure that <coughs> How long do you feel you've been around, Sandy, in terms of the development in your career? Well, we, we could, from a materialistic perspective, um, I'm, I'm in high school as far as being a writer. I haven't been, I, I say I haven't been writing that long. I started in 72, so that's somewhere around 15 years, which is, which is hardly significant at all. But in, in, in esoteric terms, um, I, I've been around since ancient times, and, and that comes into my work. And if, if the muse speaks through me as an artist and as a creative individual, well then the knowledge that comes through there is very old. Seku, you know, um, to me, the, the idea of new, a new voice at this, at this stage in the game is sort of speaks to, I guess, um, the, the segregated culture, you know, segregated American culture, where um, we can say we're not new, you know, that we've been around, but I mean, to a, a, a larger kind of culture, to hear from us at all, I guess, would seem new. In a way, the idea about new, I think, speaks to the, the whole business of poetry and the business of, of writing. Um, people who finally get published in this magazine or that magazine or finally get published in this anthology or, or finally gets recognized by this press suddenly becomes new as far as that whole um, sort of tract is concerned. But we come out of a, out of a whole different box. I mean, you know, we come out of a, a, a social, aesthetic, philosophical, an entire movement, you know. Um, the, most of us started writing at the time when it was a very vibrant art scene you know, in the black and Latino communities. And then when we really became of, of age, we were working under the thrust of the principle of self-determination. You know, we were publishing ourselves and having and sponsoring our own readings. And, you know, so I, we, by the time we got through all of that, we were, <laughs> we were old, <laughs> you know? I mean, there's some places you could go in this city and say the baby grand, you know, and it'd be complete news to, to, I guess, most people in the city, but in other places you say that, and they know that that's a bar on 125th Street, probably as significant to the, 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 the history of contemporary black poetry, especially in New York City, as the Apollo was to the development of, of, of Harlem, you know, itself. So, you know, the idea about new is, you know, is really, um, it's really political, it's really <coughs> a political term. And the politics, I like to think, is about who's going to get to describe reality. What perspectives are going to be considered the correct perspectives? Um, and that is obviously a function of the usual things that uh, society is a function of. Caste, class, race, economics, gender. Um, but there's there's been a process of self-discovery 
because um, it, at least in my lifetime, our, a lot of the thrust has been the assimilationist thrust as uh, epitomized in the Martin Luther King um, payday. Um, and there has been a whole, through, through writing, um, through reading in a literary, through discovering that there is an African American literary tradition or a non-English or French <laughs> or literary tradition. Um, there has been a growing consciousness about what the United States is and who we are in it and how far we are from any kind of truth in this country about uh, what its power relationships are, what its uh, uh, basic and root um, thrusts for creation have been, and therefore where we're going to go. Um, I've been grappling lately with trying to move out of the box of uh, gender, race, per perception, even as I only moved into them 10 or 15 years ago, because for most of my life I thought I was a white man, intellectually speaking. Uh, <laughs> um, and so then I've sort of gone through the tr tremendous amount of specialness, self-preoccupation, uh, uh, self um, lining out the borders of them and us, you and me. And now I'm beginning to try to evolve, if allowed, into uh, something which is comprehensive so that we won't need a pass, people won't need a passport to the black experience. Uh, they can just assume that it's the human experience um, like, like any others. So I would hope that our newness, <laughs> to echo Sekou, becomes uh, far less new and much more, much better understood. I just remember something. I remember, and this happened, I, I bet you, to each of us, when poets and writers when poets and writers wouldn't pay us to read, right? And we had to, we had to go up in there and say, what you mean you're not gonna pay us to read because we haven't been published in, what was it, I don't know, five or 10 or whatever, whatever, whatever the deal was. And here we've been reading our chops off and you know, and I we mean. We didn't have 10 magazines. Right. Right, and that became a struggle. People say, well, send it in any way and demand to be listed and, and that whole thing. If you look, I looked at a poets and writers application recently, and they've got all these categories under there now. Performance, you know, uh, literary, all these little sub-categories. Sub and I think the fact that we challenged that, that because we felt locked out was how that became to change and it became sort of a, a more democratic thing happening inside of poets and writers and in fact defining what is poetry and, and who is, you know, who is a poet. I went to Columbia University, the Graduate School of the Arts Writing Division, MFA candidate, 1984-1985. Three published books, radio, television experience. The people told me I could not write. Okay, that has something to do with what's new and what's not. It is also a very horrifying kind of experience to have when you're 38 years old. Um, but I was not an academic poet. And relating to the theme here about urban, um, one of the things that, that the urban experience has forced me to see is that 
the luxury of being sort of very contemplative and very ivory tower with one's poetry rather effete is to miss one of the important dimensions of poetry, which is to galvanize, to affect, to define, to move. Lewis, would you, uh, would you like to say anything about newness? No, I'd like urban? to save my three minutes. Go right ahead. He, he thinks he gets three minutes for each question. You know, so. no, well, everyone has hit on, on the main points, and the whole notion of the whole notion of contribution to the literature, I think, is clear. That um, uh, when we speak of literature, we are not talking race or gender or nation, uh, but we are talking about the grappling with the truth. And uh, I don't know of a tribe on the planet as Sandy was alluding to. I don't know a tribe on the planet that don't have their contribution to the wealth of our sense of understanding. And so from, uh, so I'd just like to proceed to the other questions and then I'll leave up my other two minutes. <laughs> See, that wasn't even a response, right? The time counter here. Let's move into the urban setting in a way that is more interesting and, and positive. It uh, is possible that having lived in this city, New York City, and I know that all of you have resided here for some time in your lives, does have something to do with your poetic voice and shaping your poetic vision or even your personal vision of life. Um, I remember that Sekou spoke about the city influencing his psychic landscape, and I copied that quote down. Uh, Sandy talked about thinking visually as a result of living in New York City and being reared in the Bronx. I guess what it really comes down to is uh, most of you, if you've lived here, would have some idea of how that could affect your sensibility as a human being. What intrigues me is that I happen to know each of these people has also lived rural at times in their lives or has had a great familiarity with that. I guess my next question is this. What influences, how do you differentiate the influences on you based upon having lived urban and having lived uh, rural or overseas in a small town? We'd like to take that. How does it shape your work? How do those different places shape your work? Doesn't shape your work? Say cool, there'll be no more questions for you. <laughs> Well, I really tried to think about that question, Charles, before we got here. And um, I guess any place where you are is going to be the place where you draw your images from. Urbanization for me was a very painful process because I'm, quote, sensitive, unquote. And the sites that one sees in, well, first of all, there's regional urban. I mean, I could look at, at, at sites in Atlanta urban and or sites in Los Angeles urban that wouldn't do the same things to me that, site, that things in New York urban or Boston urban do. So talking about this Northeast corridor, there is just a kind of horror story that I see played out all the time. Now again, I think that's a function of class. I mean, among other things, if you can't insulate to yourself sufficiently from the horrors, then you're gonna have to reckon with them someplace so one of my early poems, in, when I moved to New York City in 1970, one of my early poems talked about uh, 
creeping junkies, weeping, shaking, blind, talked about women, alcoholic women hugging bottles like you know, Madonnas of the bottle, and uh, ended with the line, go lurching home, because that's the, the kind of thing. But then again, the urban environment pressurized me in the, in the sense of contact. I met people who were creative in ways that I would not have done some other place. I came in contact with so many different kinds of people that I was enabled to become international. I was enabled to discover more and, and greater parts of my perception and therefore find new roads into myself and, and into my history. So I, I think that um, the urban experience has by and large been beneficial uh, to the extent that I have been able to remain sane, which was, you know, <laughs> Debatable from time to time. <laughs> Lewis, can you speak to the fact of having lived in Puerto Rico and also having been reared in New York City in terms of how it influences you as a poet? Well, um, I think I'd like to twist that around a little, a little taste there quickly because I got three minutes and I got to run the fan. All right. What happens is that, uh, I mean, by way of specifics, and I mean, look, everything is going to influence you because you touched it or you experienced it. So that's going to be an influence on you anyway. Even the books that you read that you forgot that you read uh, have a tendency of influencing you. So the term influence is, is going to happen. But uh, by way of what I saw, if that's what you're asking, uh, I was born and raised in Brooklyn in an area that was largely populated by people who uh, were mustered out of uh, World War II. Uh, and most of them, by the way, were transplants into New York City. First chance they got to be on the urban scene as soon as they got their mustered out pay. As a matter of fact, uh, I believe everyone here is, is no less than one generation removed from the land from people who work the land, the peasantry. Um, and I was early exposed as a child to that peasant background, which um, uh, is, is not as uh, deprivational as people like to push in relation to the city. As a matter of fact, it's a hell of a lot more wholesome. Uh, and I came here, uh, came back to New York City and saw the differences between New York and this little side town on the side of a mountain in Puerto Rico. But those people that I grew up with and remained with in the area that I come from in Brooklyn had that value, that sense of being, of community, of responsibility one to the other. Someone would whip my behind and for doing wrong and take me to my father and he would whip my behind too. But then I saw the disruption too. Uh, roughly about 61, 62. The uh, drugs coming in from uh, people who have no regard for our humanity and um, making that available to us enough to disrupt that sense of, of vibrancy, of community, of communalism, if you will. Um, and that certainly uh, influenced me went through the 60s from like 64, I would say, through 72, where the activism was 
recreational and insistence. And I saw the betrayals of that. And that certainly uh, influences uh, my writing. Anyone else? New York City versus rural areas. I do worry dreadfully about, about young people growing up, about people who grow up who relate only to a human-made, machine-oriented universe. Uh, the lack of relationship to natural cycles, to the understanding of forces as something that exists above and apart from desire, which is one of the things we learn in the country. Um, seems to me that it's producing a different kind of human being. You know, uh, a total, uh, a human being mediated only by other humans and by the products of the human imagination. Not having to reckon with the reality of trees, the reality of seasons, uh, the force of storms. Uh, and, and that kind of, I, I think that, you know, maybe we're better off if we do have some sense. So more wholesome than that. <laughs> well, I, I like the way you disagree and then define the term wholesome. <laughs> Sandy, your, your statement about thinking visually, since you're also an artist, mm -hmm. not a, a writer, and, and uh, what, what kind of art do you do on that question? Uh, I do graphic drawing, painting. All right. In terms of living in the city and thinking visually, how does that impact upon your language or the forms you write in, the way you, the way you uh, perform your work? Um, well, you know, I've always had a great deal of trouble in, even though I think visually in, in seeing my own self. And I think that that's, the, that's a, a human dilemma. Um, so if I could answer that question, then, then uh, you know, if I could see how it impacted my work, I, could answer your question, but um, I I don't know I, I connect to the city as, as in a lot in, in what Judy said in that um, it's an unnatural environment. I mean it's, it's man-made. So the city is is the metaphor for all the ills that that uh, exist in in the condition of the earth at this particular time when we are you know, at the doorstep of doom and face the destruction of the universe, well, of the earth anyway. Um, so the city represents that for me and somehow the, the juxtaposition of the images with the city and the images with nature um, play into, into my work. Sure. Two, um, just two things. I'm not sure how they related, but they occur to me in the, just in the course of well, this discussion. One is, Sandy, you and I must have talked about this before. We must have been in some place where this similar discussion took place because I remember you saying many years, several years ago that um, being a young girl in school, having to reconcile Spanish, Spanish and English in your mind that the teacher may say a word in English and then you heard it in Spanish and trying to pull those two. Or not knowing what was English and what right, was Spanish. Right, right, right. 
which to me sort of really depicted yeah. that whole that that whole conflict that we're talking about. But the, the other thing is. Um, memory I had of this summer going back south to the first family reunion <coughs> for, my, for, my, for my father's side of the family in Charleston, South Carolina. And the reunion was held at this place called Boone Plantation. And I mean, my idea of going back to the plantation wasn't about exactly going to a reunion, but the fact is, is that in the south, many of those plantations had have been turned into resorts and state parks and recreation, recreational areas and such. It just so happened that Boone Plantation is where um, Gone with the Wind was shot. Right? So it's a, it's a huge um, recreational area and people have a lot of family reunions there and so on. Right? And the point is I started realizing this. I stayed in Charleston and then I traveled through what they call the low country to some of the islands down towards Georgia towards Hilton Head and Defusky and places along there. And I started and I began to realize that um, what I knew as the South and what I knew as my rural experience, I always assumed somehow still existed but that I wasn't there, you know? But that's not true anymore. And what I discover is that this, in this culture, regions and people have more in common in spite of what they want to believe than is acknowledged and, and realized. Um, perhaps the biggest difference between being here and being in the South, and, it's, and this difference is diminishing, I think, every year, is that had my daughter grown up and been raised in the South and got a job teaching, for example, she could probably still in the small area where my folks came from, still afford to live in that area now, today. I, on the other hand, who grew up mainly in El Barrio on 105th Street, would literally at this point be working to pay rent to live in the same neighborhood I grew up in. So that, um, you know, that, that's perhaps but one difference, but that's I think is beginning to, to, to become less and less of a difference. So that that aspect of the American dream that had people feeling that their children will do at least as well as they did and hopefully better is no longer the case. You know, so this is a completely different, completely different era. Just to tie this up, I listened to the radio when I was there. You know, and I remember the radio as a child where it was really the Bantu stand, you know, go to the right end of the dial and that's where all the black music was. And everything else was everywhere else, right? And you could, and you'd listen to people, and you'd hear that, you know, you'd hear the southern thing in their voice, and they had their own style. Motor Rooster was a big, a big um, uh, DJ. He rode around on a, on a, on a, some sort of vehicle that looked like a rooster, and he had on a chicken thing, right? And Motor Rooster was the hit. Okay, everybody, all the radio stations, all the disc jockeys sound like any station you turn to in New York. There's no accent. It's obliterated. You listen to it on the radio, and you, you How look. How far south you, did you go? This is South Carolina. Well, that ain't the case in Alabama, honey. Well, <laughs> what weather? But listen, listen. That may be the case in Alabama and Florida now, 
but I think I'm describing a trend to you, you know? That's right. And I'm, I'm trying to point out that this is a new era in American history that, you know, that we've entered. So realizing all of that, I think that that influences, you know, how I write and certainly what I'm thinking about nowadays. That's right, just as the, just as the planet, quote unquote, gets smaller, so too the nation. So and too the nation? Yeah, and so do their differences become narrow. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the whole other, whole other, I mean, there's somebody, somebody some, there's some workers somewhere probably right now on a loading dock about to unload a piece of equipment that they know is going to put them out of work. <laughs> and that was not made in this country. Okay. Yeah. You know, this is a whole right. other box we're talking about. Siku, I like what you're saying, but I'm from Baltimore. I was reared under segregation. My condolences. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I find that even with the new consciousness there, the inner harbor and other things, when it comes to my writing, the bitterness I felt as a child and the sense of isolation and not being able to go here and there, I mean, it's just amazing how close my experience is, basically wants me to write out of that bitterness still. You're talking about, if not reaching some kind of psychic accommodation, at least understanding the South in new ways. I ask you this, how will that influence your writing? How will that influence your art if it does it all? I'm not even sure what you asked. Okay. <laughs> all right. Excuse me. You, you have articulated the fact that when you went back to South Carolina, ancestral South Carolina, mm -hmm. you saw things happening that you had not imagined. All right. I guess my bottom line is this. I think that many artists I've known and writers I've spoken to obviously see transformation in their lives take place when they go back home. You can go home again, let's face it. A lot of people never leave, even though they live elsewhere. <coughs> but the fact is still, those childhood memories, those early adolescent anxieties, are often what is so strong that to accommodate yourself to a new vision about, new pe about people uh, you had certain preconceived notions about or, re or real experiences with, means that you still can't quite move your art in new directions. I wonder, for instance, if you wrote a, a poem about your Boone Plantation experience, what would the qualitative difference be now that you've been there and haven't just heard about it as a result of the family talking about the past? What would the qualitative difference be? Well, I, I, I don't, I mean, let me just my response to that is sort of conjectural, and it's and it's sort of a takeoff on that. I, I can tell you what one of the things I feel most strongly about, most passionate about now, and that is the future of the city, right? Not just New York City, but the future of uh, city. What, the city. The urban unit. Yeah. <laughs> um, and how much the future of that, how much the future of the city, is would determine not the future of, 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 of the country, um, but also the future of black people and the role that, that black people will have to play in the future of the cities, especially the black males. You know, I mean, I, I think I've been, you know, I read a couple of studies and I listened to a couple of experts and they all agree that nobody knows what to do about the black male. They don't know what to do about them in Washington, D.C. They don't know what to do about them on Columbus Avenue. That's why they lock the stores, and you have to come and, and buzz your way to get in, you know, 
to get into, into the stores. I don't know what it is that makes you look like you're an acceptable, non-dangerous looking black male. Um, but that's the big question, you know? Um, so I realize that part of what has happened between what we're calling the rural experience and the experience here in the North is that, um, especially for men and for, for, for maleness, that there has been an, sort of an erosion you know, of many of the values and many of the, um, the uh, uh, concepts that go along with, with, with what it is to be a man, that a lot of it was rooted in the rural experience, I get partially related to the work experience in the South, tied to the land and, and the rhythm of, rhythms of the land, as someone mentioned here. I mean, people had great individual and personal pride in the amount of work that they can do. I mean, the women in my family, um, the older women in my family really evaluate a man on how much work, you know, he can do or how much work it appears he can do, how much work he appears he can handle, you know. The urban experiences I've known it is people say <laughs> it is not about that. That's not where, you know, the idea of self-esteem and self-worth, you know, comes from. So, but if it's not about that, then, you know, there's not been much to replace it, you know what I mean? Um, so some of the things I'm thinking about now in terms of um, politically and in terms of art are questions, are questions like that. Yeah. In terms of the voice, new urban voices, when each of you read, I was taking quick notes on the varieties of types of things I noticed in your poetry, cultural allusions, rhetorical questions, certainly parallelism, the type of thing Martin Luther King was famous for. I have a dream this afternoon. I have a dream is that you know repetition of style is quite evocative and, and, and often incantatory. Um, the four of you, obviously, if you've heard them read more than one poem, you'll know it for sure, are very good performing poets, very good readers. I'd like to turn now to a discussion of voice, and that's not easy. None of us have scores before us, except possibly the poem, the poets, to see what the poet poems look like on the page. But you had mentioned earlier, listening to the radio, uh, at least two of you had allusions to various types of jazz or musicians in the, the early poem, the uh, first poems that you read. In terms of the dynamics of how you write poetry for performance, what are some things you listen to? What are some of the influences that make, that make you um, perform in certain ways? whether it's on a page or whether it's up in front of you. So 
So I simply try to create an interesting, evocative experience wherever the poem is. And if it gets performed, that's all to the good. Um, okay, with respect to everything that Judy said, I also think that because of the nature of colonialism, which is where we all come from, and understanding the reality that we did not publish our work, that our work for the most part was oral and was handed down to us that way, we developed a sensitivity to that particular form of expression that, that and I think that comes through the subconscious as well as the, the conscious. And, and so we have a strong orientation towards the oral tradition. Lewis? Well, I insist that uh, you hear the word, too. Because without, I mean, you can, you can be deaf to the sound when all you're doing is reading. Uh, technical books have that. Uh, you get bored to death and you're not even understanding what's being said so uh, and you have to read it three four times before you get it and that's not right uh, the way I write is allowing you to make that relationship between your mind's eye what we call the imagination and that sense of music that I hear in the process of excavating into that particular image. Um, the, 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 the oral tradition, yes, of course. I mean, the whole idea of poetry uh, through the, the, the centuries has been to hear and feel as well as understand the lit uh, by way of the, the, liter the literal quality of, of what's being said. Uh, when you hone something into uh, an acceptable form, well, you see now there's something wrong there because the acceptability of form, if you remember, Billy Shakespeare had a problem uh, with uh, being accepted because his form was from the street, uh, from the people, and geared towards the people so that um, you're supposed to capture their music, that nuance, that sense of being that's peculiar to every one of us. I'd like to read a quote that I found very interesting. And this is Tulani uh, Davis, who's also an African-American poet. And she's, let's see something here. This is from her essay, Known Renegades, Recent Black, Brown, Yellow. And it's in an anthology called The Poetry Reading, a Contemporary Compendium on Language and Performance, edited by Stephen Vincent and Ellen Zweig, and the publisher Momo's Press, 1981 San Francisco. But what she says here, I think in some ways relates to what Lewis has just said. And I'd like to continue this discussion by having people keep some of this in mind. For me, the process of memorizing in complete terror and concentrating on giving them to the audience, she's speaking of, a po of her poems, that could not have a reading access to them taught me more about the content of the poems than any previous experience. 
It has pushed me to try to do all readings from memory with the intention of having the poems experienced by themselves as works without the intrusion of the writer's hind thoughts and after vision. Whereas a few years ago I had, I, whereas a few years ago I had thought this and the improvisation that comes with it could be, a, could be done only by people like the last poets, I now see that it is a tool for finding my own voice or solo, as a friend once said. Those readings I have done alone, just doing the work for a 45-minute set, with only occasional moments of complete silence, have felt like meditations and singing, and seem far away from the classroom lecture kind of thing that I used to do. It is different even from a set with live music. Here the voice can be the whole band. All of these recent performances have been incredible fun for me and experiences that teach me about my work and about writing itself. When I see the word band, Seiku, I think of you because I do know that you're involved as a musical performer and as a poet. What do you think about what Tulani had to say? Uh, well, let me, let me tell you a story. There was, when I was, uh, I guess, in my late childhood and, and early teenage years, I used to go to church. I used to belong to this Baptist church on 110th Street. And, um, <clears throat> I mean, you know, I went to church because there was, there was uh, well, I went to church because they told me to go to church. <laughs> <laughs> but after a while I developed a little motivation on my own and part of it had to do with the organ player, the choir, and the preacher. And um, I'm sure you've all heard enough about that culture, but th this particular preacher, when he, when he really started, when he reached his full stride, he would say something, then he would draw back to take air and he would go, and then, uh, 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 uh. When I first heard that, it scared me. You know, I didn't. I thought, I thought he was leaving. You know, <gasps> but I realized a little later on, around 1966. Or what year did Coltrane die? 67. 67. 1967. There was a memorial for um, Coltrane. It uh, may have been the day or the day after he died in Mount Morris Park in Harlem, uptown, and the and the the. the Warrior was live, was all the musicians in town just came and jammed. I mean, it was all day and straight through the night. Um, and I just happened to, by the way, be talking to South African poet, um, Carol Petsiko Desili the other night, um, who happened to be here at that same um, jam. So we were sort of reminiscing about that. And I asked him if he remembered the moment, and I was a, I was a teenager, when Sun Ra came on. I never even heard of Sun Ra before, let alone what his music was about. Sun Ra came on stage and he had a crystal ball in one hand and a clock in front of his face in the other hand. And his horn players were in the audience where we were. And this guy was standing right next to me playing his horn, you know, and Sun Ra was standing there with the crystal ball and all of that. And in the same time, I'm <laughs> right? <laughs> and then, years later, Hamid Blewett, baritone saxophone player, who says he has the greatest range of any baritone saxophone player on his, on his instrument, five octaves plus, was playing a, a, a solo concert 
and walked through the audience just like Sunrod did. And he played, he was playing, and he stopped and played right in my ear. And he said, that was a B flat, my man. And kept playing, right? So all of this said to me that it was about how you sound, you know? And, and of course, I read Amiri Baraka's essay or his statement on poetics, um, which was entitled, How You Sound, which of course sort of ran into the whole tradition of poetry in American poetry, it, the whole idea of the democratization of it, getting to speech, getting to how people actually think, you know, um, the whole idea of, of breathing and the breath, all of that began to tell me that um, the kind of art I wanted had to be as personal as how I breathe and how I sound, as personal as Sunrise style, as personal as, as that B flat that Hanny Blewett gave me and as personal as that <clears throat> So that's what I've been after. Let's go after some more about sound. Who wants to speak to it? Performance and sound. Well, understanding some of what happens in, in um, Caribbean linguistics, there's a very important process of learning and transformation that, that evolves from the dialogue, from the word, that doesn't even exist on a piece of paper. You know, um, women who, who sit in the kitchens and have conversations early in the morning are going through serious processes of, of transformation and regeneration that um, it, ha it happens that way. I, um, so, so it's a very real part, I think, of, of what happens. Well, in terms of my own self, it's, a, it's an important part of, of, um, of my evolution, and, and, and it's a cultural thing. It, it's interesting that you would say that, because in reading Sandy's poems in the last week, I noticed how many seem to be to someone, even if that person wasn't identified. They were very lyrical and sensitive, but many of them seem to be addressed, I sense, to a specific person. Now, I could be wrong. It could have been a persona you created. But let me ask you a little more about your, your um, you mentioned Caribbean, being Puerto Rican in ancestry and being bilingual. How does that influence the way you hear, how does that influence the way you hear when you write poetry? Uh, well, it certainly gives an expansive quality to the way I hear. Up until, up until I was six years old, I only spoke Spanish. And then after that, I wasn't allowed to speak Spanish. In, in, um, in school, I, by, by threat of tennis racket, I had to speak English. So by the time I reached the third grade, I absolutely existed in a confusion of not knowing what was English and what was Spanish. And I would spend hours trying to decipher one language from the other. Consequently, I think because I confronted that situation, it sensitized me to language and to the effect of words and sound. And being bilingual, I think, just expanded that even more. If I were trilingual, I mean, I think it, it would be magnificent <laughs> realizations that we have. Lewis, can you speak to that, the bilingualism? Well, in my case, I think it's sort of like quadrangle. I mean, I think I messed up the attempt there, but 
Uh, there are many languages at work uh, in my head, among them certainly Spanish and what they call standard English, given that uh, that is what you end up reading and trying to remember. Um, but uh, what is what John Oliver Killens calls uh, Afro-Americanese um, certainly uh, was, a, uh, for me, very definitely a separate language. And um, it has its own lexicon, by the way. And um, so that uh, saying, you know, trilingually speaking, and then <clears throat> uh, I have a son who is uh, hard of hearing, and so I had to learn another language, sign language. And um, uh, by the way, just to show you how racist and deep that is too, right? Appreciate that this is the sign for African. A ring around the nose. That this is the sign for Jewish and stingy. And that this is the sign for I like like and white. You got me? Touching the heart. So, uh, well, you pull at yourself, you know, and you say, you know, like, I like you, right? Sometimes you can get confused. I white you. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? But uh, no, he had a rough time trying to get through that stuff in terms of conceptualization. And we had to develop our own signs. We got rid of this for Chinese and instead crossed the heart with a big C for China. We got rid of this for African and got an A across the heart. Or adultery. No, no, but you see, uh, the, no, uh, it don't work like that. Your PhD that is showing. Yeah, was down across the uh, Adultery is something like that. So, so, uh, so you, you, you know what I mean? The sign, no, 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 no. Every word has its, every word has its legitimate impact, and by way of voice and sound, just to come back to that point, no, imagery is, is just as important to me, too, because when I write, I try to stroke you out a photograph of what I'm seeing at the same time so that you can be in there, too. But at the same time, uh, I'm paying, like I say, I'm paying attention to the music that I hear. And when you consider syllabication, not meter, because, see, free verse don't allow for meter as much as uh, notes, if you will, right? So something else is happening there. Um, uh, the metric system is is, is for something uh, for another form, but um, what we do ain't been ain't been scientificated yet. Yes, very much so. Sure. Look, when you say S O F T versus D E M A N D, now each one requires its own nuance. Demand! You see, they, just the way they are made and what they imply tells you what to do. That's not metrical. Um, listening to all of you talk about deliberately and consciously creating the sound has made, made me um, reflect on maybe one of the reasons 
I feel so misunderstood sometimes by people not of color in terms of my art. Because um, I hear everything I read. So that to me, there is no differentiation between voice in terms of ear and word in terms of sight. They just go together to me. And perhaps what is needed is, in fact, the kind of performance which can acquaint other people who do not come, up, come out of the cultural context that I do with what I automatically hear. So I mean, that's kind of an interesting notion for me to play with. Because I just take music for, gra I, for granted. I <laughs> discovered that all the men who broke my heart all had the same timber <laughs> you see the Which errors one? that you make? <laughs> <laughs> one inheritance of the black American experience, of course, is dialect and accents and vernacular, not that any other racial ethnic group may not have that, but that's a very strong component in terms of bringing in a, the folk in black poetry. Sekou, that's something I think you do very well. Um, this is a strange question, but you know, at least I, I told you it would be. Do you find that you have any sense at all of when you tend to move into slang or uh, a persona that wouldn't sound normally like yourself, let's say like a deep south voice? Often it's conscious, I'm sure. But at other times, I know you and I know you well, you even speak that way and just sort of slide from being formal and using what's called a graphelect, that thing you were talking about that you hear all the time in South Carolina now on, over the radio station, where everybody sort of sounds like a mini Walter Cronkite. In terms of your writing, in terms of your oral per, uh, performance, what kinds of voices sort of inhabit you beyond what we're hearing tonight? Uh, well, see, I was, I was sort of disappointed you didn't address that bilingual question to me too, because okay, I, you I'm got bilingual. It. You got That's it. That's right. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> That's right. Right. You go right in. American, you better be. <laughs> you um, gotta work and make a living. But just, just let me tell you this. Uh, since you asked me that strange question, I'm gonna give you a strange answer. All right. I remember reading. I, I remember when um, uh, John Coltrane recorded "My Favorite Thing," you know, and and that was one of the the, the biggest hits as far as commercial success goes for almost any jazz, you know, recording, and. Aside from the, the just the beauty of the music was what he was doing technically, which of course I didn't know at the time. I just loved what I heard. But um, it was in that recording where he's playing soprano saxophone where he finally started publicly, you know, playing more than one note at a time on an instrument where, you know, saxophone you, you can only play one note at a time, you know. But he had gotten to a place where he developed a way to play more than one note at a time. And when I understood what that was about, I was trying to figure out how I could say more than one word at a time. And so I've been working on this idea of polyphonic poetry, which is sort of what I've been doing um, with my band, with interlocking and overlapping voices, saying sometimes the same things, sometimes saying different things. So I mean, this, so that's that's one thing. Again, going after certain, you know, certain kind of um, techniques and, 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 and ideas, you know. Right. Um, 
the other thing, though, I realize is that probably, I think, uh, out of all the poets, probably Amiri Baraka has gone the furthest, you know, in terms of nailing those kinds of techniques down that have musical references in the work. Um, he's, he's been working for quite some time on this long, extended piece called Wise, or Wise, where he uses, it's very interesting, he uses a word in this poem that you could never find in the dictionary, and the word could almost be a scat word taken from, from when someone is scatting in a, in a, you know, in a song. And he says, the poem is saying something about, it's, it's the voice of, at least at this point, the, the voice of a slave, right? Mm -hmm. And he's saying um, that when they caught him, they banned his um boom ba boom Yeah. Right? And when they ban your um bam ba boom you's in deep trouble. Might take you 400 years to get out, right? Now, um bam ba boom is not a word. Yet, that sound is so charged with meaning that right away, you know, we, 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 we grasp something and it resonates for us, you know. To me, that's a particularly African-American way of dealing with speech and music and poetry, you know. So, it, I mean, it's those, those kinds of um, techniques and things that I've been thinking about and trying to get to. Do you think it's possible just to do an impromptu uh, with other people here in which you set us up and we do a quick polyphonic thing just to see what it sounds like. I'd be interested to hear it. I don't yeah, because all the, everybody here has memorized some, some poetry. Could you just uh, sort of yeah, Lewis tell us start. what to do? You no, know, he knows what to do. Lewis knows. Go ahead, Lewis. Wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I lost the question. That's the only I'd problem like, I have. I don't mind cool. doing anything. I just talked the about the polyphonics. <laughs> polyphonics. I'd like to see if just in a period of maybe a minute or 30 seconds, he could give us a demonstration by using voices right here in terms of what that may sound like. Now, we're not just talking onomatopoeic devices. No, no, just, uh, just do a poem. Just do anything? Yeah, 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 I, Can you use three people? Can Sandy or Judy enter into? Do I read a whole poem or? Oh my goodness. No, 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 wait. I don't know, <laughs> what, don't know what y'all talking about. Oh, uh, I'm trying something here. Maybe I shouldn't have tried. <laughs> yeah. no, 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 no. I just no, wanted no. to see. Take a risk. If, take a chance. Even if you gave from a memory, phrase, Lewis, don't read anything. From memory? Yeah, don't read anything. Anything? Yeah, anything. Just go. From the crack on this side street scar. I reach up to greet your pulsing touch. We want to change the world. Get it on, we'll do anything to change the world. We'll stay home You'll for walk. three straight days. Soft lurid strokes Without on the pavement, gleaming with hop, skip, slide in and trip. And come back to work Get all up slow and, and untrained. We want to jump change. up and we burst. From your state. We want to change. Who says I is can't be who, who I am? We'll grow underground and kill one day. Stick their heads on broken parking meters the next time they stop. And why should I believe? You help this shadow. I can't scream grow through the calls. turbulence. Complain about the way I live so my voice smile. is gone. And I am we'll be serious poets from Kansas. That you then be serious. Headed for New York and Chicago. Insist I call you with one. thousands of one-page poems to explain. 
I got two pages. The rule of every breath you draw. Then tell it out. In this passing yes. of steps, we'll be jumping our buildings. And I read right, for the depth of black heaven. I'm glad you folks, when I asked that, I said, I hope they tried. Thanks, thanks a lot. Okay, that was nice. Um, we'll lynch you later, Mitch. All right. <laughs> Wes, it's uh, about 9.30, and you said we'll go for about two hours. Should we stop and deal with audience discussion? I mean, by the way, excuse me. Sekou, you did tell me that you wish to address um, the future of the poet in New York City. And that's something I know you feel very strongly about, and I don't think there's been time for it. Would you like to do that now? Um, no, maybe it'll come up somewhere. In the okay. All right. So there were a lot of things here I wanted to, you know, address and get to, but now audience response, and should we still read a poem of peace? I mean, what's okay? So, and Rob. Improv, okay. So those of you in the audience, if you have specific questions for the uh, poets, the writers, um, feel free to ask them. Okay. Excuse me a minute. Uh, Pamela Pierce just told me to repeat your questions clearly in the mic so that she gets them on the pen tape. So. You had a question. Okay. It, uh, it is the question has been raised whether the improvisation that took place just now is very different than what Samuel Beckett did in one of uh, his skits, plays, what was it? Uh, in one of his plays in which he made a symphony of voices in which people spoke at the same time. Are any of you familiar with that Beckett? Play? No, but who wrote it? Samuel Beckett. That's the difference. That's the difference. Samuel whoa, whoa, Beckett whoa. wrote it well, and there are three people, you know, doing Samuel, Samuel Beckett's, you know, work. Here we're talking about off the top just three people with their own work, out of their own breathing, and out of their own. The question is, weren't you speaking of yourself, attempting to do that sort of thing? Yeah, and I was talking about it in two contexts. One is with my band, um, where there are sung parts and uh, things that I do with what's called signal processing equipment where I can double and triple my own voice and I can hold certain phrases over periods of time and then repeat myself on top of that as well. Um, so, you know, that's, that's, that's sort of one kind of The other is this though, just this sort of improvisation, you know, thing, which is sort of going by um, a different set of lights. You know, it's, it's um, like the old doctor said, sort of like doing a, 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 a high wire act without the wire. For a second, 
Uh, I, I'd also like to add on to that just very simply that this process is not new. Um, that uh, this is as old as uh, before people sat down to write the play out. Right? The folks in the village performed it. The chant, the older of the forms of poetry in written language or tradition or oral traditional language. Uh, that, that 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 chanting, that sense of conjuring up different images simultaneously in it uh, and celebrationally, if you will, right, uh, is, is as old as uh, work itself. Sir? You, I say you're expecting run DMC. <laughs> I have to make your statement available to the tape. So essentially an audience member said that he was happy to attend and fine, uh, having understood. Pleasantly surprised. Pleasantly surprised. Um, to attend a session with the new urban voices and fine that they weren't gritty and, and what sort of, what's your word again? And long suffering, and still, instead, there was a, a modicum, anyway, of uplift. <laughs> Don't attack the audience, Judy. <laughs> they call that disrepresentation. One of one of the one of the really painful things about having the history of a non-European history in the United States is that um, the experiences which are most formative are declared by many members of the majority culture to be a drag, to be uh, uninteresting, or, at, or why don't you forget about that old stuff like slavery. Um, <coughs> there is much to be learned um, from us about living in that our, quote, downtrodden experiences are not our only life, you know, and that however they may impact on somebody else, the very fact that we have the vitality and the ability to enunciate and create them speaks to our having, you know, somehow encompassed and gone beyond them. And for me personally, one of the great difficulties is to get, I say for me personally, for all of us, uh, is to get those experiences respected. The middle passage, the, the packing of people into 18 inch high separated planks is something that is just as key to human understanding as you know, I'm trying not to use the usual comparison that we use here, so let me find another one. Those skulls in Campuchia, okay? Um, now, nobody exactly wants to go and dwell on skulls in Campuchia, but if somebody uses those as an image, they don't feel guilty 
and they don't feel that it's devalued. I mean, they don't, they don't automatically say, well, this is that tired old black stuff, and you know, why are they doing <laughs> this? And, and so I feel that for some people who might make, have a kind of expectation like that, um, this is coming out of the general devaluing of the Africans' experiences of the world that exists in European-influenced cultures, which seem to be about all of them on Earth at this point. Uh, so understanding you know, what the gentleman meant and not <laughs> meaning to impugn him personally, I want to say that that's symptomatic of an attitude about us that has the name of this panel being New Urban Voices. Mary Cole. Oh, and, and I'm sorry, let me add one more thing. I deliberately did not read, I am the downtrodden. I am the poor and deprived who got star billing for a decade. I didn't read that on purpose because I thought that it would be good for this audience to hear something else. In other words, you're quoting from no. a poem. You're quoting from a poem you wrote. Yes. Okay. Miracle. I mean, I, I appreciate Americo's comments, but he raised something that <coughs> actually was sort of um, indicated by things people said earlier and that I really want to just speak about for a minute. And that is that, that, um, that some non, uh, we have a non-European experience here in America, or that some of our foundations or roots does, is, is not European, you know? And, and that's a myth, you know? I mean, that, that's, that's a fallacy. And, you know, I think that um, <coughs> to look at that is, is to really not truly understand who we are uniquely. Who is we you're speaking about? Well, let's, sure. uh, well right now, let's say black people. Right? Let's say, let's say black people. I'll, I'll use that because that's what I know best, although I, I suspect it pertains to anyone who is, who is not of European ancestry, but who is, is nevertheless, nevertheless American. Mm -hmm. you know, in, in the hemispheric in, in, sense, too. 
Well, let me say my yes. part, then you get right. your part. <laughs> you go right in. <laughs> Three minutes. <laughs> I mean, this thing that we call, you know, Amer American culture, you know, I mean, like, we, can, we can't say that we're not Western, That's you right. know? And part of that is, you know, the European experience. My example is always jazz, because in my mind, um, the jazz musicians have achieved the greatest level of artistry and genius um, that black people have, have created. Not the only, but to me, that's, the, that's the, the greatest, the most profound. And I mean, we could, if, we can't, if we don't understand Western music, it's hard to understand that. And of you course, sure? you have to understand you know, um, blues and, and everything else as well, but that's a synthesis of that. That's the third aspect, the third thing that came out of that. Then the last part of this is that I'm reminded of a joke that um, Richard Pryor uh, told, called it, I know Westerners know this joke, on the origin of black humor, which sort of also speaks to the issue um, the gentleman in the back raised about um, so much joy. I think part of what helps people, people all people survive, and, and, and the black people as well, is this sense of humor. You know, stuff is funny, but it's not funny. And this way of looking at things in, in the opposite. Right. <laughs> right. There was this tune called Function at the Junction, and the artist was a guy named Shorty Long. You know what I mean? It's that kind of, that kind of mentality. Anyway, um, Richard Pryor said on the origin of black humor that there was two slaves sitting near each other in the slave ship, right? And they were rowing. All of a sudden, one slave just bust out laughing. <laughs> he said, man, what are you laughing about? And he said, yesterday I was a king. That's Richard Pryor. Mm -hmm. Okay, Judy has a question for the panel. And then we'll be back to the audience. Yeah, it's, it's part of what we've just been talking about. <clears throat> a lot of what we did in the 60s, or what people did in the 60s, or what was said in the 60s, did have, it seems to me, as its purpose to make white people feel bad, to make them feel guilty, to hold them responsible for creating a system that made us, you know. And then one of the things that happened in the 1987, 86, is that the, uh, one of the, I hope, junior editors at the New Yorker told me that white people weren't crying over black folks anymore. And this became a justification for the new chic racism. But the challenge that began to present to me as a writer was to ask myself, am I expressing or am I communicating? And how much of the universe am I including as people that may he see and read? And who, how many reactions can I anticipate? And so I really want to ask the others of you, because this is something that I'm struggling with at this point, <coughs> is somehow to evolve out of the black-white box, maybe? Or does that mean that I am betraying our ancestry and ignoring our history? Or you know, or is this just my personal problem? I'd well, like I'd to like to speak to that right before Lewis does, because yeah. that is one of the questions like that did no, no, that did come up, and that is the artist, the black artist, the Latino artist, the spokesperson for a people. Lewis, uh, first, I, I sort of like disagree with the notion that uh, the reason for the poetry of the '60s was to make white people feel bad. I thought it was to make black people feel good. Um, but then it all depends upon your point of reference. Uh, but I'd like to 
give you my response to the question by way of a story. I used to be connected with the New York Book Fair before it stopped functioning. And uh, this year, by the way, was their last year. And um, several years back, uh, I, I was at a, a fair uh, showing off my books, trying to get some sales. And I want you to sort of like picture in your mind the setting. You have a row of tables, uh, sort of like a pit or a gut, a row of tables. And the people who are manning the tables are sitting in the pit, right? And so directly, diagonally across from me was this other fellow publisher who was selling his wares with his table behind him. And it happened that uh, the majority of the black folk that were passing through would stop. I'd engage them in dialogue. They'd engage me in books and stuff and all like that. And after a while, my man sitting over here, he's uh, European-American, and he leans over and he says, wow, that looks interesting. Would you recommend any of them? I said, you pick anyone you want. I recommend every one of them. They're all good. I'm going to say that anyway. And it happens that he picked up this one that happened to be the first one that I had published called Poets in Motion. And he flipped through the pages, stopped, read a couple of stanzas, flipped through the pages, got to the introduction, looked, put it down, gave it back, turned around, didn't have nothing to say for about an hour and a half. So I says, uh, after a little low, you know, I says, uh, so yo, man, uh, what, what, what happened? So he says, hey, it was all right, but I didn't know that Homer was black. And it happens that the introduction, it was just the opening line in the introduction that said that Homer and Aesop were among the few Africans that the Greeks gave cognizance to as Africans, right? That they were black. and. That was just the opening line in the introduction. And he got very upset behind discovering that Homer was blessed. I said, well, brother, you would really be in, sh in bad shape with me if I told you that Socrates was an African too. You know, and his face turned all kinds of colors on me. And this, was, this happened on a Saturday morning, and we were there till Monday night. And my man had absolutely nothing to say to me the rest of the uh, weekend. Now, what I'm saying here, you see, is that it is the negation of a black contribution, of an African contribution, of a Caribbean contribution that, ri that, that, that gives rise to a 60s type of poetry. And it is that negation that we are still confronted by. The fact is that I could not understand in my head what was so wrong with looking at Homer or Aesop or Socrates and saying, hey, in addition to what they said and did, guess what, the, the dudes was African too. Why not? Those children in the schools, those children in the public schools, they don't see their faces in the books, you see. And when you don't do that, you're killing somebody's spirit even before he gets grown enough to want to read, to want to search. I assume we have about 10 minutes left, and I think that it's only fair that you still have an opportunity to ask questions, but in some ways I feel it shouldn't be my judgment. Um, 10 minutes doesn't allow enough time, I assume, for everybody to read one poem. Um, how do you feel about this? Basically? Is it okay to turn to the audience? Do you want to read? Or you want to read? Okay. Any more questions? Yes, sir. 
a member of the audience has asked if there are poetry readings in Harlem, Bedford-Stuyvesant that people can go to on a regular basis. No. The whole time. Um, no, <laughs> He's the only one that's speaking. <laughs> Speak. Yeah, um, I say yes, and I'm not being too humorous about it because there are, and that's the problem. If our market, if our, if we look at it from that perspective, or if our audience is to grow, is to people to come to wherever we have given the chance or wherever we instigate our, our word. And they're the, from the traditional cultural institutions, from Museo del Barrio, um, the new- Tell um, where it is and what it is. All right, there's, a, there's several museums on Museum Mile, which runs from Fifth Avenue, uh, 60 something street, the first museum, all the way up to 104th street. That's where Museum Mile ends. One is El Museo del Barrio, the uh, city museum, the studio museum in Harlem, which is 125th street or 7th Avenue. What you have to do is go out to the minority art organizations that give out these information, get them, and hopefully start seeing them. Um, gentleman there is, a, is my chairman of the board of an organization I help find with other third world writers called the Metropolitan Literary Program, which tries to be an alternative literary service program, alternative to poets and writers who sometimes doesn't get you the minority writers. And we get, we regrant monies to pay for writers' fees to come to you so they can read, so you can hear them. El Museo de Barrio is one participating agent. In Brooklyn, we have Brooklyn College. You have a thing that comes in the, in the warm weather season called Brooklyn Underground, which is a art exhibit group, and they bring poets to the communities. Um, again, the same place you hear or see the listings for the non-minority urban voices, you, you'll, you'll, see, you'll see the advertising for those readings that are well organized. Sandra Marias Estevez is the executive director of a thing called the Afro-Caribbean Poetry Theater that not only promotes writers and stuff, but promotes the theater arts. What you have to do is network to those organizations that give out the information or go to the Department of Cultural Affairs, the State Council on the Arts, et cetera, and you'll find them. Just so that I can throw a little plug in, uh, the second Thursday in November begins an open poetry series on 13th Street near 2nd Avenue at a small gallery called Sekuku. Excuse me? Okay. And I could have mispronounced it. Uh, and um, it's Thursday nights from uh, 7 to 9, exactly. I I'd also like to quickly say that black newspapers in the city, like the Amsterdam News and the City Sun, do often list what's happening in the black community culturally. Say cool? Um, no, I mean, out of deference to Americo, you and Lewis, the answer to that gentleman's question is, is no. no. That is true, too. You can, there is no place in Harlem or in Bedford-Stuy that I know of that you can regularly come and hear poetry you know, and meet poets and hear poets discuss things. And not the fact that there is not, the fact that there is not is, is, is an indication of work that yet needs to be done. I think the fact that there is not indicates that we're 40 and 41 and did that from 20 to 35 and we're all tired because there wasn't no money in it. No, that's, maybe you're tired. 
I'm he is. Tired. I'm not that's, tired either. That's, that's not no, that, that it, right. it, it is true that it is not as it was up until about '82. That is true. Right. Where from '75 through '82, there wasn't a place, there wasn't a borough you couldn't go to that, or a night Every that Sunday, you couldn't read. At least. But uh, that gets destroyed by uh, others. Reagan All right. I've, I've seen two hands. So this way, can I take the gentleman in gray seat first? I saw his hand first, and then I'll be with you. Oh. Okay, sir. I think the problem is that, that you know, you have What did you, uh, can you repeat what you said again? What are the publications you mentioned people may be interested? The Black Scholar, Word Up. In New York City, quarterly Word Up comes out. What else? New Yorican. Quite a couple. By the way, uh, Mr. Cassiano, Americo Cassiano, who spoke about where readings are available, et cetera, is also a poet and a cultural worker and a good friend. And where is your place, Amerigo? I don't have a place, but uh, we have uh, a mail address by which you can get it. If anyone is interested, they should speak to Amerigo after uh, the panel ends. Siswe? Where is it located? Sutton's 145th Street and St. Nicholas. It's almost 10, I just... Let the rascals okay. read a poem, for golly's right. sake. <laughs> okay. All right, so each poet will read a poem. For those of you who have to leave, thank you for coming. Um, if you can stay, good. There's a reception afterward in this room. Okay. Um, who wants to go first? Can we try not to read poems that are too long, though? Because I can tell people are a little tired of sitting, and that's understandable. You have to tell Lewis, though. So what? <laughs> <laughs> so <some folk> <laughs>
Sandy's going to read first. Sandra Maria Esteves will read first. Okay, this is a poem of, of how I merge my, my urge to want to be a visual artist and wanting to be a literary artist. I want to paint, recreate my life on an empty surface, place myself in a rainforest of tropical jubilation, cool and moist, meditate on textures of shaded mist dripping over primary renditions of dream tones, flash a large stroke of sunburst across a never-ending rain. I want to paint the way Betty Carter can deliver a blues like you've always wanted to hear it, the way Andy Gonzalez makes his bass race over a syncopated turnpike, the way Tulani and Entosaki dialogue women tunes within the hearts of poems, the way Luis Reyes Rivera breaks a casual word into 100 songs. I want to paint, become the canvas and the walls, the brushes and colors, the pens, pencils, and fine line markers. Be the shapes and the shadows, the highlights and reflections, the dominant emotions of all my strokes. I want to become the combination of dawn colors, the Caribbean ocean, the rainbow, the mountain jungle, the noonday sun, the moonlit night, the chaos, and the calm a fire-breathing dragon shooting a golden blaze, a supersonic jet across a clear sky, a volcano. I want to fill my landscapes with trees, rivers, and thunderstorms, mountains and very tall grass, build bridges across oceans, hold up the sky with the palms of my hands. I want to paint and be the sounds that make me sing even when they make me cry recreate myself, change the pattern of creation, bringing forth the birth of my own voices. Then I want to listen to them as they sing. a restaurant's back door. Mr. Night Cleaner, sir, could you tell me if there's profit after death? Each day breeds you mopping floors, scrubbing counters, crawling rags, wiping flues, changing bulbs above a cashier's cage, that smirks back fast a white tie joke on the grease stains that surround your walk. Do you own a share of this? Each day drags you pulling trash-filled bins and garbage cans, waiting on a truck to pick you up like pounding dust on mat rug floors or sweeping cross cobweb doors outside alleys encircling another shattered drum. I, my man, is who you see, the one who has not known the taste of a real meal splendid, but who eats instead to feed stomach lines of damaged walls, ingested worms with roach legs, breaded chicken, broken wings, and Brussels sprouts 
rotted now in the soup of garbage you yourself drag out each night and leave behind beside a restaurant's back door. Mr. Night Cleaner, sir, will you sit with me? I tell you, man, no one asks me what I wear and where I sleep, and I don't ring on no one's bell, but gather up these boxes here to lay beneath that hot air blowing through those grated screens, exhausting on my cardboard makeshift mattress, searching warmth on a cold, hard street. They chase me from the land, and here I stand, forsaken. Do you care to offer me? I tell you, blood, I have heard that I get more than millions more have ever seen in one full <coughs> sitting, and that fact alone is more than reason to complain since what I get is what you throw away. And one loud single mouth like mine can easily get rinsed with wood grain apple blossom groping for a spirit lost to groggy nights of red-lined men whose emptied faces swing at bottle caps in place of doing battle with their wrath. Do you care to share a drink with me? But drunk or sober, wake or not, I can be exact. Like landlords and grocers and bosses and badges, I shed no mercy, I growl no grin, but stare at hate in daylight dress, the look of men who cannot feel compassion's heart attached so much to leather cases, papers flying, ticker tape, charts and plots that shake and tremble when I pass. They know what they did to me. Taking, taking all they can, barely paying, hoarding all in homes and towns way up far from where you sleep. Do you share your meals with them? Like you, my man, I got no choice. Unless we join to break the back of every dawn that cuts us loose from the deeply cutting edge of change, changing everything in sight. Will you share a meal with me? talking to myself in the gangrene of a space rotting from too much emptiness. Like a diamond and silver filigree globe, gleaming, glittering hard and bright, I was drifting. My light was turning blue. When I asked them to see my images, a child enraptured, they threw coal dust in my eyes, began the dance of the blind. I hold on to sanity like a fierce knife I can sever vertebra with, slice down deftly without spilled blood or pain to the backbone and the heart of it, my madness. Love strangling, hate strangling love like a knot, black-white death grips on each other's throats, recognition that screams for embrace and a dangerous union. Between us, 
raw porcelain faces. Our struggle toward love is a trek through our dry hatred of them. We stutter like savages, angling for decent intentions. Your words at last searching, my tongue less a lash. We always go, it seems. We always go to the ocean at low tide. We could walk deep. We could walk deep into the sea and never be in over our heads. We do not believe, we do not believe, we do not believe that drowning is for us. High tide comes out of the water the same way for the last billion years, there is nothing new. We see without looking. The smallest talk passes and settles into what music is about, music is about, music is about. In the car, in the car, the road. In the car, the road murmurs beneath the wheels. Yes, yes, you could say. We are dancing, and from this one thing, we know ten. We know ten things. Thank you. I guess it's my job to say thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Pamela Pierce and other members of Penn, Wesley Brown, Vice President of Penn, um, and certainly the panelists for making what certainly was for me a very pleasant evening, and I hope I speak for a lot of you. Thank you. Good night.